as I as an introduction to the talk I'd like to make a, the distinction between the ideal and what gets in the way of the ideal. In some ways the practice of satipatthana, the different ways of practicing the text talks about, the abiding in sati, the observing the body and feelings and mind states and mind activities. That uh, that's kind of the ideal, that's kind of like where we're going or what it's about in some way or other. And then, um, but when you have ideals, uh, sometimes it can be problematic to try to go towards the ideal directly. Sometimes it can be more useful to explore, get to know the obstacles to the ideal, what gets in the way. And part of the advantage of knowing the obstacles is um, you don't really know whether the ideal is what's called for. It's an idea. When it's an, an ideal, it's still an idea. Where you're going, what's supposed to happen. But an obstacle is maybe something that actually is. It's not an idea. And, uh, and if it stands in the way of the something, if you can work through the obstacle or it's no longer there, then what comes next might be the ideal or it might be something very different that seems a, that's appropriate to arise and to happen. So the idea of clearing, making a clearing so that something can grow. So, you know, we have weeds in our flower bed and we clear the weeds so that we can allow something to grow there. So, part of this talk will be focusing on the obstacles. Now, in terms of the ideal, um, this Satipatthana Sutta talks, uh, uses different concepts that are related to each other to, um, by all being aspects of attention or attending, or bringing attention to our experience, or having attention. And uh, as us teachers speak about the practice, and we use a lot of different words. It's almost as if they're near synonyms. So, you know, something very general like being present. What in the world does that mean? Being present. I think it's a I think it's a wonderful term, but I suspect everyone will have a little different idea of what it means to be present. It's not quite you know it's not so clear, but it's it kind of gets us in the territory to experience. And what is that? What kind of attention awareness are we using when we're experiencing something? I think to be present and to experience something, uh, you know, that can be you know all the attentional faculties, some of them in different ways. There is, um, I like the term meeting our experience. So sometimes we meet the experience, make contact with it, be intimate with the experience. 
And then there's words like to be aware or to be mindful. There's to abide that's related to this. There's a term to observe. There's the idea of knowing and recognition. There is, um, um, you know, these are some of the words that are like, ex- also in Satipatthana Sutta is the word to experience. And these are all part of the attentional field. Uh, uh, an instruction and a verb that's used in the Satipatthana Sutta that I'd like to think of it as intimately connected to the attentional field is the word uh, to relax or to calm down. And it's used in relationship to the body, to, to relax the body, to calm the body, is part of the very clear instructions given in this text. And what arises, what kind of attention arises when there's a relaxed body, soft body? So these are all kind of maybe nuances of difference between some of these terms and the different circumstances in our life. Uh, we kind of naturally will do different ones of them maybe. Sometimes the recognition factor is clear. We recognize what's happening. Sometimes we're naturally observing what's going on uh, and that's what's called for. Sometimes we, you know, and, and the kind of awareness and attention we use it's you know, constantly morphing and changing. Uh, we pay attention in different ways. And you can kind of see this quickly, I think, if you go driving in a car. And uh, it requires different kinds of attention depending what's going on around. And um, come to a red light and you sit watching light to change. And you're kind of very focused. That you don't want to really let your eyes leave too too long from the traffic light. Otherwise, the people behind you will get annoyed if it turns green and you're still not noticing. Or you go through the toll booth on, um, you know, the Hand Bay Bridge. There, in, the, in San Francisco, there's these toll booths. You go through to go across the bridge, and and um, <coughs> part of the art for me of going through those toll booths is I shouldn't admit this, but is to go kind of only as slow as necessary. I guess I could go even slower, but only as slow as necessary. And it, uh, you know, but that takes, you know, the, the, you know, if I go really slow, it doesn't require so much sharp focus and attention to detail of going through, but the faster I go, the more I better be really alert and really pay attention to what's going on. You know, so different kinds of, you, know, you go down to the lunch line, the meal line, and you're curious about what's in the food. And so you bring a kind of focused attention. You sit down with your food outside, maybe in at lunchtime, and you have a bite, and then you stop for a while, and you kind of let your eyes kind of gaze around the forest out here. And it's very loose, soft, focus, open, kind of taking in a lot at, wa- different, a lot at once. And it's almost like you're not doing anything. So we naturally shift and change. And one of the things that I, I kind of hope to convey for this retreat is the idea of being curious about how you, how you are attentive. 
what is this attention that we have? As some of you know, I, I, it was a time when I loved looking at old photographs. The older the photographs, the better. And um, I mean, so old that clearly the people in it are now dead. That's what I, that's what I was looking for. And so, you know, the uh, photographs from the 1800s were really great. And, and, um, and occasionally the photographs had a lot of clarity, a lot of resolution in them. And, um, and there would be, you know, what I was interested in is photographs of people. And I find myself very drawn to these photographs. And I uh, would go up closely, look at the face, to see the expression on the face. And occasionally there'd be all this, the eyes would almost like shine, almost like a you know, glimmer of some kind of beautiful attention that was there. Sometimes there was almost no life in the eyes, and the eyes were kind of tired and sad and something, and d different expressions. But especially if the eyes were kind of sparkly. And, um, and I wondered why I was attracted to these photographs. And I think w what I realized at some point was that um, was somehow that was their moment. It was a moment captured on film of a particular moment here and now, a here and now for them, and that was their moment to be conscious. That was their moment to be aware, to be awake, to be here. And what they, looking at these photographs would do for me, it would tell me, and Gil, this is your moment now. This is your moment to be alive, to, be, to appreciate the capacity to be conscious, to be aware. And it just felt so precious, so special. I wouldn't want to miss it for anything. And we miss it so, so often. We don't really prioritize or we're often preoccupied and involved with other things. So that we, you know, we can't really appreciate the specialness of this capacity, the marvel so I think of all these different kinds of ways of being attentive as like uh, the different um, facets of a gem that we all have, this gem of attention, of awareness that we have. And, um, and we're discovering it, how it operates. We're discovering different ways to be with it. Uh, sometimes we learn how wonderful it is to abide in awareness, to rest and kind of a natural awareness that's always here. Sometimes we learn it's useful to have focus attention. Sometimes it's useful to recognize what's happening with clarity. Sometimes it's useful to observe and watch. The, the language of observing, I think as I said, the open evening, to me implies that uh, you, you're doing something, you're watching over time. To know something, to recognize, is, can, can, I, I, I feel more it's like a, a moment of clear recognition. This is, so if I hit the bell, I could recognize and know that's the sound of a bell. But to observe, in this case it would be to hear, would be something that's done, that continues. The recognition can be just a moment, the hearing is staying with the sound, observing it, or perceiving it, sensing it, 
as it kind of goes through its diminution. So to observe is to watch how things unfold over time, how they change and they come and go. To know is a little different, is to clearly recognize, oh, this is what it is. So, um, I'm going to use an analogy that I often teach, hopefully do it in a different way than I usually do. And that is, um, if you're sitting on the edge of a riverbank under a nice tree and feel contented and happy, and um, it's, uh, there's something very peaceful, can be, about observing the flow of the water as it goes by. There's something about observing ch ch something changing, like the waves coming against the shore, that you know, go on and on forever. They've been doing it for millions of years. Um, or just the, the water flowing down a river. It can be very peaceful. We sit there and just watch it. And the kind of, kind of way in which we observe that um, tends, tends to be kind of relaxed, kind of like being on a grass, laying on a grass lawn and, and looking at the clouds drifting above. We're noticing it, we're observing it, but we're kind of just observing the changing patterns and the flow and there's something about it that can be very conducive to being relaxed and at ease. That's very different than if you want to, you know, observe something which is fixed and doesn't move. To, to keep watching something that's unmoving, uh, you have to actually strain, you have to, to actually be tense, you have to kind of work hard to kind of stay there because the natural tendency of the mind is, and the eyes is to move. The, my, the eyes, the natural usage of the eyes is to constantly be kind of flow, flow, flowing, moving back and forth a little bit. And, but to hold the eyes fixed is not so, you know, that takes work. So to observe, in practice, is to observe things as they move, move by, or move through, or as they come and they go. Or to be able to observe that part of it that comes and goes. Just there it goes, you know. So something might stay for a long time, but uh, aspects of it are shifting and changing. And is there some way of not straining to to observe, but to settle back and kind of like you're looking at a river, the river of the present moment as it comes through, abiding in some kind of awareness that we're, we're cognizant of this kind of movement of the present moment, all the different kaleidoscope changes of what happens in the present moment. And so you're on the riverbank watching the river and just nice to watch it go and Sometimes a leaf falls onto the river and comes by, and it's kind of kind of fun to see you watch a leaf go d go down the river and you kind of watch it go. And maybe there's a duck that comes and it's also floating down river. It's kind of nice. It makes it more interesting for a moment. It's kind of just part of the entertainment, just being relaxed. But then comes a big, beautiful showboat with bands playing and movies and concerts and casinos and partying and all kinds of just, you know, delights. And the next thing you know, you're on the boat. 
but not. Ne- but it. But it took you about two months to realize you were on the boat, because it was so captivating. You have so much to do, and you just get so all absorbed in that. And after two months of being on, this is tiring. You know, I haven't slept for all these days, and and um, I was so content and happy on the riverbank. And why did I leave? But I didn't even notice that I left. I just suddenly was on the boat. Um, another way is to be on the riverbank, and this boat comes down. First the leaves, and then the ducks, and then comes the boat. Oh, a boat. Look at that. And you watch it come and down, and you wa- observe it and watch, and down it goes. Maybe it anchors right in front of you for a while, a few hours, so it doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't go that fast. But, you know, kind of so nice just to observe. So you kind of lean back against a tree some more, just observe. Oh, look at that. Showboat. And then there's all kinds of boats that can come down the river. They have different boats for different preferences. So, so sometimes it's the war boats. They're fighting the just cause war. And they're f- coming down the boat, down the river with all their guns blaring and shooting. And next thing you know, you're on that boat. Or it could be the most decrepit raft that you've ever seen. It's so poor and miserable. and You, you just feel so sorry for this poor little raft. And, and next thing you know, you've been on that for a few years. What am I doing here? So you get off and go back up to your place in the river and just stay there on the solid river bank and you watch. And after a while, you begin to appreciate that um, how valuable it is to actually just observe, to rest and just be there. And so then after a while, all kinds of boats come down. And after a while, you just learn to just let them come, let them go. Observe them as they come. So one of the, some of the boats that are highlighted in the Satipatthana Sutta are the five hindrances. And um, so there's the boat of sensual desires. Then there's the boat of ill will, of aversion, of anger, of irritation. Then there's the boat of uh, sloth and torpor. There's the boat of restlessness and worry, restlessness and regret. And then there's a boat of doubt. And these are highlighted by the Buddhist tradition as being particularly important hindrances because they hinder the clarity of the mind. They hinder our ability to be wise with what's happening. And they hinder our ability to be settled and stable, to be concentrated. And part of the task of mindfulness practitioners is to kind of become, it's kind of like you need to get a PhD in the hindrances. You kind of, it's very important to kind of get to know them. And given that they're so important to get to know when they occur, if they should occur, uh, then uh, take it as an opportunity as opposed as, as something unfortunate. 
taken an opportunity not to indulge in it, not to get on the boat, but maybe to learn about it, to study it. And one of the things you can study is how in the world you get on the boat. What's the attraction? What's the belief? What's the hook that get, gets you to leave the solid shore of observation, of just being aware, abiding in awareness, to being caught up and involved? So, for example, for some people, sensual desire, it's the promise of pleasure. Or the very fantasy of sensual desire is pleasant, and that's the hook, and we get on. Sometimes the, uh, sensual the hook for sensual desire is that it's compensation or relief, because the alternative is so uncomfortable. So sometimes people have a lot of pain or a lot of distress the mind will go into sensual desire because it's fantasies, because it's just so much more pleasant. I, I've had people tell me that uh, you know they were practicing for a while and some challenge in their practice, pain or something, and then they said, well then I kind of let myself go on to a really good des sensual desire fantasy. They didn't specify to me which ones, but the, but the interesting thing they said was, um, I felt like I deserved it. Because you know, I had been doing such hard work, you know, so you know, it's compensation for all this hard work of something. Off they go. Sometimes uh, the hook for sensual desire is uh, um, some kind of sometimes loneliness or sense of lack, um, some kind of hole that we have inside of us we're trying to fill, and that's what you know is the attraction to it the attraction of ill will or aversion, sometimes it's self-righteousness. It's easier to feel like you're right and special and better than other people if you can be critical of them, be angry. Sometimes it's uh, the hook is that we've been hurt or we're afraid and it's more comfortable to be aversive and be angry and be hostile or towards something. Sometimes the hook is that uh, we're just struggling with discomfort. And something is very uncomfortable, but we feel like we can't stay with it. We have to blame, we have to fix, we have to attack. Um, and sometimes the hook is that there can be a pleasure in certain kinds of fantasies and thoughts around aversion. And so we climb into the world of aversion because of the, the certain kind of pleasure certain kind of something that comes from it. Uh, for some people, it can be a sense of power. The more the hate, the more the aversion. So it can be a lot of energy and heat. And some people feel like they feel kind of helpless or feel like they don't have much power. Uh, there can be a strong pull into that kind of strong aversion because that's where they suddenly feel alive and feel, you know, that they're alive, they're present, they've, you know, and that's the hook. Sometimes the hook is a belief that that's the only way to take care of oneself. Sloth and torpor, and what's the hook for that? Sometimes it's resistance. Sometimes, uh, you know, we don't want to face what's going on or be with what's happening. And so a strategy to avoid is to get tired and fall asleep or to get bored. Boredom sometimes is a, either a kind of aversion or a kind of shutting down. 
when it's a form of aversion, it's a kind of, sometimes it's a form of aversion, sometimes it's a form of kind of sloth and torpor, where we kind of give up, we kind of give up being engaged and practicing and we kind of like, kind of just sink back and, and um, sometimes it come, the hook is discouragement. Sometimes we have expectations that's supposed to go a certain way and it's not going that way fast enough. And so we get pulled into the discouragement or get to, you know, reactive to the, to the failure of the expectation. And so there's a kind of a discouragement that sets in that brings on sloth and torpor. Sometimes, uh, and then uh, restlessness and remorse, restlessness and worry. Um, what's the hook for that? What pulls us into that world? And um, sometimes it has to do with issues of self-image and self-worth and needing to prove ourselves or be someone or seeing ourselves in the eyes of other people and our self-image maybe is challenged. Issues of regret. Sometimes the hook is, um, it could be a good thing. It could be our conscience. We have regrets about what we did and what we said. And, uh, but we feel like somehow we have to kind of, kind of really kind of, like we deserve to be filled with regret. We deserve to kind of get heavy and be kind of the victim of our own mistakes and our own problems. And, and um, so we get kind of glued to it or caught in it. And sometimes people will have very strong tendency towards feeling that they're somehow inadequate or wrong. And so uh, restlessness and regrets and worry can be closely connected to this ideation, this belief system about not being good enough for something. And this just reinforces it. And that hook of getting it reinforced sometimes is what pulls us into it, kind of in a, not consciously, but. And the and hook for doubt could be that uh, we have too high expectations of what's supposed to happen. And so living in those expectations and things are not paying out fast enough, then uh, we have doubts about it. It can also have to do with our self-image. Like we take a lot of responsibility for, or we have, a, or we invested a lot of um, value into the, 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 how much Buddhism or practice or a particular teacher or our practice is going to save us, it's going to fix or make our life happy ever, ever after. And when our expectations for others and how to be fixed and to be helped is too high, sometimes unrealistically so, that's kind of the hook or that's kind of the, the, the channel in which then sometimes there can be strong doubt because sometimes you've set up too high an expectation for what all this is going to do. It's going to happen too quickly. So, I don't know if those kinds of hooks that I offered work for, work for you. You might have your own ideas of it. I just kind of tried to offer some examples, and there are many more that could be dreamt up. But uh, it's a way of getting onto the boat. And we can get pulled into the boat so strongly, we don't know we're on the boat for a long time. And, um, you know, I've sat with resentment which is kind of an aversion. And I've sat with it for days. Uh, sometimes it came and it went. 
And surprisingly, sometimes I've had resentments that I didn't have for 20 years. And then, lo and behold, where did that come from? Get away. I don't need you anymore. We finished with that. And there it is. And so it's, it stays for a while. And I, sometimes I can see myself getting onto the, into the, the thought boats that is kind of re- reviewing it, repeating it, uh, the stories that happen, and sometimes making up new stories about the past. All kind of ways of kind of staying in this world of resentment. So we get involved, or we learn to step away, to look at it, to watch it. Or we'll step back a little bit and we recognize. Two of the really great options to either recognize or observe. And uh, the, uh, the power of recognition is phenomenal. The power of powerful recognition is powerful. So if you, you know, you're caught up in sensual desire, thoughts of sensual desire, and you kind of say casually, yeah, well, I guess those, there are thoughts of sensual desire. Oh well, that, that, that's one way. Versus you kind of sit up a little bit straighter maybe, or you step back and you kind of find some place in your mind where you can kind of come from a place of clarity and maybe a little bit definitiveness and say, this is sensual desire. The first one, oh, it's sensual desire. It's kind of like you're, maybe you decided to go to the railing of the big showboat. Step back and you look around, oh yeah, I'm on the showboat. The boat's still going and the bands are still playing and your foot's still tapping with the music. But to really kind of step back, oh, this is sensual desire, is kind of like getting off the boat and standing on the shore and really being kind of, part of your mind is now apart from or independent of. Part of you is not in the show. Part of you is kind of, and so there's a clarity. And so one of the words that Andrea will talk about tomorrow, sampajana, is sometimes translated as clear knowing or clear comprehension. And this idea of clarity to know with clarity, as opposed to know in a lackadaisical way or vague way. One of the great <coughs> recognitions that I sometimes have used, that um, it's kind of like the default, if nothing else kind of is appropriate, kind of, is um, with clarity, I recognize it's just chaos right now. I have no idea what's going on in sitting meditating. It's just chaos. And, but oh, this is chaos. And that settles things a little bit. Settles me. Oh, that's all it is. It's chaos. I know how to be with chaos. Just be here and sit and breathe. And if I try to get in there and try to understand what's going on and look at the details and tease it apart, it's just too, you know, too busy. But just oh, chaos. This was going on. Another great label of recognition 
is, at least for me, was the label, this is something. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but just to say that, just that, just this is something. <laughs> that was enough to kind of step back and be on the shore and, you know, I didn't have to know what it is, but I'm recognized something is here. And uh, just that was enough. Because the idea of kind of searching for the right, exactly the right concept, that can be too busy. But, but sometimes it's obvious, sensual desire. So to recognize it, and to recognize that with kind of clear, until the mind is kind of clear, there's a clarity or independence or feel like you're on solid ground looking at the boat going by, perhaps. And then there's um, the observing. It's possible to say, oh, here comes the hindrance. It's come, it's come, and there it goes. Sometimes it can go relatively fast, sometimes it's around for a while. But a little bit, one of the reasons why some of these hindrances stay is because we've actually gotten on the boat and not only are we on it, but we're paddling it. <laughs> we're keeping it going. And, um, and uh, our thoughts, our ruminations, our reactivity to it, our expectations, our trying to fix it, trying to make it go away, all, you know, all kinds of ways in which we're involved and caught in its web is, is ways that are actually fueling it and keeping it going. The, the more you can step back and recognize with this clear place that I'm talking about, oh, this is kind of that way. Uh, for that, those moments that you say, this is sensual desire, at least for those moments, you're not paddling the boat. For those moments, you're not fueling it, perpetuating it. And if we can do that kind of repeatedly in a relaxed way, this is, I see, this is how it is. Then uh, things tend, these hindrances tend not to have as much power to persist. But if we get involved in our paddling or fueling it, they, they can go on for days. Days. I think probably that my record is three days. So hopefully no one here is going to have to go through that level of days of being caught in a hindrance on retreat. So, and the, um, but you know, they pulled into them. So it's important when mindfulness practice to recognize, and part of the I think one of the kind of things to appreciate in the act of recognition is that uh, as soon as you're recognizing with some, some degree of clarity, that's enough. Kind of nothing really more needs to happen. Especially if you, f you can feel a little bit like you've managed to get on the shore and you just you can, you can watch it or recognize it's there. And even if it's taken anchor right in front of you for a while, it's not going anywhere for a while. Um, to step back and and um, and see it and know it, maybe nothing more needs to happen, but stay in that recognition, the observing of it. Also, with the observing of it, the uh, it's possible then to start seeing that actually it's not a solid thing. It's made up of component parts which are shifting and moving. Many of the things that we struggle with, we struggle through the filter 
of ideas we have about it, concepts we have about it. And the thing about concepts and ideas, they can give this, they kind of don't change. Generally, I mean, they can, but I mean, like, the concept of, in your mind, of, you know, a, a ball, or let's say a bubble, it's maybe better, the concept of a bubble, so you might have an image in your mind of a bubble, an idea of a bubble, and, and that idea, how you have the idea of a bubble, that's kind of, you know, like an ideal type of bubble you have in your mind. But if you see a bubble in the river, it, it's floating, it's moving, it's popping, it disappears, it comes and goes. Um, uh, the bubble in the river is not the idea of it. So with the hindrances, if you have the idea, see clearly this is sensual desire. But if you stay too much in the idea of sensual desire, it might stay more in the concept realm. And it might be harder to see how it's shifting and changing all the time. And that's why the observing is so useful, being. Settle back and allow yourself to really take it in. What is this experience? Register it. This, the various aspects that make it up, the component parts. Part of all this, and uh, it gets more interesting, is you also want to uh, notice a little bit how you're recognizing, how you're observing. Because in subtle ways, the hindrances can get kind of infused into how we're being present, how we're paying attention, how we're aware. There can be kind of a filter of desire for pleasure in how we pay attention, looking for the pleasure, looking to be soothed. There can be a little coloring <coughs> of aversion in how we're aware. A classic one is, if I, if I really pay attention to this, I'll make it go away. I don't like this, I want it to go away, and I'll really bore into it, or really focus on it, or get concentrated and make it go away. And there's aversion in it. So with all these things, all these hindrances, they, they can operate within. There can be a sloth and torpor entangled with the observation or the recognition, the awareness. And, the, and uh, one of the great traps is that of complacency. It's kind of, you know, kind of sloth and torpor, which is kind of, oh, it's all fine, it's comfortable. Or there can be um, uh, regrets or restlessness in the knowing. So we're kind of observing, but we're ready to observe the next thing, or a little way, a way of being mindful that I had to correct is what I call the checklist approach to mindfulness. I would note, be aware, recognize something, done that, that's over, let's go on to the next check, the next thing off, like done my duty. And it was just like, I wasn't really taking the time to get to know it or register it or abide in the knowing of it. It was like, more like, you know, going through a checklist. Done that, done that, done that. And that wasn't useful either. It, was, it made me kind of restless and kind of was a symptom of agitation and restlessness. And there can be doubt infused in how we're aware. <clears throat> kind of uncertainty and what do I pay attention to? And is this the right way of paying attention? And 
I'm not sure that paying attention is the right thing. Should I be observing? No, I don't know if I should be observing. I probably should be recognizing. Should I be recognizing? No, I think I should be abiding. Well, I don't know if abiding really is the thing. And maybe I should be counting my breath or something, you know. So there's doubt. So, so we're still kind of paying attention, but it's, it, you know, it gets a little bit. And so part of the hallmark <coughs> characteristic of mindfulness practice is simplicity. To see if the, whatever way, whatever piece of the gem of awareness you're using, can you do use it in, in a simple way, just but clear. Simple, clear, but also with power, strength, certain. I said the, to recognize can be quite a powerful thing to do. It kind of uh, changes, the, can, in a good way, it can change the inner ecology of the mind. and It a, it's a, comes from a place of strength, it comes from a place of clarity, it comes from a place of efficacy, in a healthy way maybe, that kind of sense of agency and value. And so it so can be a great thing to do. So the five hindrances. The opening of the Satipatthana Sutta, in the, what's called the definition section that Andrea talked about yesterday, has a section of it that she didn't cover, she left it for me, which is um, the um, it says that uh, how, do, how does one practice the four f establishments of mindfulness? Um, one observes the body in the body, the body as the body, aware, ardent, and clearly comprehending, putting aside covetousness, covetousness and distress, covetousness and grief in regards to the world. So this expression, covetous, covetousness, putting aside covetousness and grief in regard to the world, is a very significant statement. And um, some people find it a little confusing because of the discussion about the hindrances because it seems like they say, put aside this desire for the world. So then there's no, you're not going to have any hindrances to pay attention to later, when it talks about that later in the text. But I think the operating word is the word, the expression, in the world, or in regards to the world. And uh, the strong desire in regards to the world, or strong distress or grief in regards to the world. And the world is the world beyond us. And when we, in that mode of being distressed about what's in the world, or if we're in, you know, want something in the world, you know, it's, it's not a crime to do that. Sometimes it's quite appropriate. It comes with being alive in the world. But even so, um, we tend to be in a relationship to the world where we're focusing on the objects out there. And that's appropriate sometimes. But the movement 
of this practice is to learn a new way of being in the world. Almost like we're in the world without so much objectifying it as a thing out there. And uh, it's kind of like um, uh, we go in word in a sense and turn ourselves inside out and then we come back into the world in a whole different way. So it's not rejecting the world but it's kind of doing an inner process that I think of as a little bit anal analogous to um, a time in our lives where we all, almost all of us I think, I think it's pretty common in our culture for most people to do this at maybe once a day where they go and lock themselves in a little room and stay alone, don't want any, anyone else to be in there. And, um, and no one complains that you've left the world behind for that, those few moments or minutes while you're taking a shower. And then everyone's happier when you come out and you're clean and you smell fresh and, and you feel good, you're ready to meet the world in a different way from the shower. You've kind of, maybe you haven't turned yourself inside out exactly, but you know, you've come back in a way t into the world and you know, to have something different to offer than when you're all grimy and sweaty. So, you know, the mindfulness practice is like having a good shower, kind of going through something and coming back to the world in a new way. And so, what this uh, setting aside desire and grief, dis desire and distress for the world, is this kind of, for now, putting it aside. For now, this is, for now, what we're about is we're not in the world of objectifying or looking at the world as an object, something out there. For now, we're turning the, in a sense, the attention, having attention in a different way. We're kind of bringing, the, bringing our attention inward, or, or I, don't, I don't know if that's the right language. We're trying to settle here. It's kind of like we're turn, turning our, the focus 180 degrees around almost, so that we're abiding in awareness. So we're, we know we're recognizing. We're awakening this capacity. We're, we're, we're paying attention to this capacity within us and beginning to use this capacity rather than have it used for objectifying things out there. So the hindrances, especially the first two, are more often than not part of this kind of world of desire and, and sometimes aversion in relationship to what's out in the world. And then it's really useful to turn the attention around away from the thing that you want, away from what you have aversion for, and start noticing the subjective experience. What's it actually like to be desiring? What's it actually like to be averting or being angry? What are the, what are the feelings, sensations? What are the component parts physically, emotionally, mentally that operate? And so this idea of resting in awareness then Resting in awareness with something which is more intimate than resting in awareness 
focused on the object of desire. Resting in awareness, taking in what it feels like to be aware, uh, to be desiring. The impulses, the sensations, the pleasures, the, the energies, the restlessness, the contractions, the beliefs that might be operating. So, to sit down to practice, I think it can be useful to consider that we are shifting something a little bit about how we are. We sit down to no longer be fixated, no longer be focused on the world out there. So that we can go inside out, we can go in and really kind of discover what's really here, our direct experience here and now. Your senses might be open to the immediacy of the world around you. It isn't like you have to kind of shut out your ears and your eyes and not have them operate. But, um, but it, we're, we're taking it in with kind of intimacy or taking it in without objectifying it, without having the thoughts and desires operating in relationship to it. Just be here, the direct experience, being here. So the word in Pali for the world is loka, L-O-K-A. And uh, in this little phrase in the sutta, it means the world kind of around us, outside of us, the wider world. The Buddha also uses the word loka in a second meaning. And the other meaning, it refers to our, our, the, the immediacy of our psychophysical experience, the, 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 our personal world, kind of. Not the personal world about, you know, our family and jobs and all that, but something more personal. Right here, where, you're, where your senses, seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting, where, where that happens. Really the sensations, feelings, mind states, thoughts that arise and come here. That, Hudoku said, that is the world. So I love it, the idea that if you really want to enter the world deeply, go into this world. The whole world's in you. Go into this world fully. Discover what it is. Rest in this world. Abide in this world of where you sense and feel the immediacy of your experience. And then you get turned inside out. And what I'm, partly what I mean by that is that you will come back into the wider world, but you'll come to the wider world perhaps with less clinging, less attachments. You maybe come back into the world with the more sensitive parts of yourself to sense and feel and have empathy. It's like if you go around always with a fist, your connection to the world is going to be very limited. 
But if you turn the fist kind of inside out so the palm is open, that's a sensitive part of the hand. And now we can, you know, so much more of the world can be felt and experienced and met and cared for. So to set aside for now greed, covetousness, grief, distress in regard to the world. And if you can't do it, if you can't put aside those things, which can be difficult to put aside, it's easy for the Buddha to say, then it's not so much putting aside the distress and the greed, but it's putting aside the focus on the world, but rather turning around and being intimate with what the experience of desire is, covetousness is, what the experience of distress is, what the experience of grief is, to let there be an intimacy, a closeness, to allow yourself to feel it. And to see, maybe experiment a little bit, is it, does it feel best to be with these things while you're resting in a kind of open awareness, to just feel and let it be there? Is it, does it feel best to do so by clearly recognizing have this clear recognition, ah, oh, this is what's happening. Does it feel kind of most, most meaningful or valuable to just sit back and watch it, to observe, to observe all the, all the, all the different aspects of it, the sensations of your body, and the emotions and the thoughts and energies of going on. Is the way that you're being present for your experience, is it settling? Is it somehow helping you in the, in the very best senses of the term, helping you become um, stiller, more peaceful with what is? What form of being present, what form of being aware, of being mindful, supports you to not be agitated, to be less reactive to what's happening, to just be, to just be. Just to be alive is enough, just to be. Be here, breathing. Be here, in this moment, that precious moment, then when you're conscious, so that if we took a picture of you and in a hundred years someone looked at that photograph, they said, yeah, that was that person's moment to be conscious. And you were there and you say, yep, I was there for it. As opposed to you hear them say, that was that person's moment. Well, yes, but you know, I wasn't really, I missed it.
may you really appreciate and value the simplicity and the preciousness of just this moment, breathing, being aware, being here. And may the mindfulness, the attention support you to come to a kind of rest and peace being here just now. Thank you.